Why is it so hard to impeach a president? Cass Sunstein joins us to talk about his two latest books, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, and Authoritarianism in America. What do various body parts tell us about Victorian culture? Historian Catherine Hughes joins us to talk about her new book, Victorians Undone. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Cass Sunstein joins us now from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to talk about two new books, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, which he wrote, and then Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America, a new collection that he edited. Cass, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. I should explain, Impeachment came out last fall, and Can It Happen Here came out this spring. And I think one of my favorite things about the fact that you are so prolific is that on the cover of this newer book, it says, author of the New York Times bestseller, The World According to Star Wars, which I guess was probably more of an outlier in terms of the work that you do as a Harvard law professor. Was it coincidence that these came out so quickly in succession? Yeah, it was. So the impeachment book, which is really about America and the revolution and how we came to be the kind of country we are, that went fast, much faster than I expected. I kind of got obsessed with the topic. The book on authoritarianism was conceived because so many people on the right and the left were thinking, well, can it happen here? And so I thought I'd assemble some authors, you know, diverse people who had different perspectives, and they delivered pretty quickly. I think they found the topic uh, more engaging than I had expected, and that meant they immediately started writing, and that led to two books that came on on the heels of one another. These are both post-November 2016 projects, I'm assuming. They are, though the impeachment issue really is something I've been working on since, gosh, probably late 1980s. And teaching constitutional law, I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. I had a book in mind basically since about 1995. It took a house in Concord, Massachusetts to get me to actually start producing it. So what got you to thinking about this subject back in 1995? Well, I had taught constitutional law and produced with some great people a constitutional law casebook, and impeachment just played such a tiny role in the book, and that fit with the fact that people in law schools just weren't thinking about impeachment, even though it was completely central to the founding. And after the Clinton impeachment, which I had some involvement in, I had accumulated some stock of knowledge because I studied the period with a degree of intensity that I hadn't, even as a teacher of constitutional law, that I thought there should be a book on this. And then in 2017, it occurred to me it would be pretty valuable in the midst of all the incipient conversation just to, to get back to the original principles. And since I had the kind of lawyer's understanding of the clause, the impeachment clause, without having a full sense of the history, uh, I, I thought basically for a long time I should get that full sense of the history. And in 2017, I tried my path. All right. Well, let's go back to the earliest parts of that history. Where does the origin of the idea of impeachment come from? It actually comes in, for American purposes, from the UK. And in 
England, there had been impeachment proceedings that went way, way back, long before the independence of America was possible. And it was a way of getting rid of people who had abused their authority. And the idea was that there are officials who are uh, serving the king, but they can go wrong. They could violate liberties. They could be corrupt. And there needs to be a mechanism by which to get rid of them. And that's that's where it developed. And was it ever enacted in the UK? Yeah, it was used. So it was an official part of the mechanism of government where impeachment would be done by the House of Commons and removal would be done by the House of Lords, a little like uh, what we have here where the House does the impeaching and the Senate does the removing. And it was done in a, a very large number of cases. It was less thought through in a formal way uh, that happened at the Constitutional Convention and the ratification debates where there was kind of fixation on what it mean exactly. But in England, there was a practice with a general understanding that took the form of uh, basically terrible abuse of authority, then we can get rid of the person. Was it a given at the Constitutional Convention that impeachment would be incorporated in some way into the Constitution? Not at all. And that's something, you know, that surprised me when I first got into it in the 1990s, there were some people who thought, you know, we have a system of separation of powers, and we also have a system of elections. So unlike in the UK, where you don't have those things, we don't really need impeachment. And further, some people said of the Constitutional Convention, we shouldn't have impeachment because then separation of powers is obliterated. If the Congress can basically remove the Senate from office, then where's where's separation? And that was articulated well at the convention, but it was a a big loser. And the reason it was a big loser is that the faction that Alexander Hamilton was part of thought, really, that we just fought a war to topple a king? And if we don't have impeachment, then we're creating something like uh, a monarch. And so the view that was articulated and in some ways very coherent was destroyed by the argument that we're a republic. And in a republic, we the people have to be able to get rid of of the most important person in the government. You mentioned Hamilton. Tell us what the lines were. Who was in the the, maybe the more pro-impeachment camp and, and those who argued against it? Who were they? The leader of the impeachment camp included, kind of most famously, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison was there also. George Mason kind of went back and forth, and became ultimately the most expansive defender of impeachment, meaning we need a very broad ground for the ability to get rid of the president. And the ultimate kind of core debate, it really was Mason and Madison, where Madison, and here following Hamilton, thought that we need to have pretty tight grounds for removing the president, and Mason thought we need to have pretty broad grounds for getting rid of the the guy, and with Mason thinking with several others that the president might not have committed treason, he might not have committed bribery, but he might have done something really horrible, and therefore we need to have a form of words that captures the horrible. And the, the term that he fixed on was maladministration, and so there, we call it the maladministration camp. 
And for modern readers, that seems a little crazily expansive, that it couldn't mean anything at all. But back then, one thing I learned is it was more disciplined than that. There was a history in the states of using the term maladministration, and it meant, you know, terrible misconduct. It didn't mean political disagreement. But Madison, on the other side now, representing the narrower camp, said, you know, even if we have some history for maladministration, it would make the president really dependent on Congress, so we need another term. And the term that emerged was high crimes and misdemeanors, and that term was rapidly agreed to by Mason on the ground that high crimes and misdemeanors fit with his hope, which was not just treason and bribery, but also terrible abuse of authority. And so it was ultimately high crimes and misdemeanors captured, let's call it the expansive camp, symbolized by George Mason, and the narrower camp symbolized by Madison and Hamilton. Well, what was the argument for making it so difficult to impeach a president? There were a couple ideas. The basic one was four years is not that long, and we want the president to have independence of the Congress so that separation of powers is intact. If the president was impeachable for, let's say, misconduct or maladministration in the broad sense, then there would be uh, instability where the people couldn't be assured that the person they'd be elected will continue in office, and there'd be uh, a compromise of the, what they saw as the productive tension between a president who had one agenda and a Congress who had another agenda, and they'd be mutually checking. So that was the basic idea. You can't make uh, the president basically Congress's lackey and retain the separation of powers. But at the same time, even though it's pretty narrow, it's not that narrow. So the the idea of high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't mean that you have to show a felony or you have to show some criminal violation of a terrible kind. So the fact that Mason, the defender of the expansive view of, of grounds for impeaching the president, basically readily agreed to high crimes and misdemeanors is a signal that that had enough breath that it took care of his concern. Do you think that they got it right, the ultimate definition that they landed on? I do. I think that the, the course and arc of American history is, in this case, an astounding testimony to the prescience on this point of the founders. And, uh, you know, it's a little um, too romantic, I think, for people to see the founders as divine beings who were channeling God's will in the sense that they got everything right. I think that's too strong. But impeachment, they they got on the formal words, they got it, it, it quite right. There are two things that maybe you could object to them on. One is they didn't foresee, Hamilton kind of did, but generally they didn't see the emergence of a party system with party loyalties. And the combination of party loyalty and the the constitutional term both might make impeachment too readily used, where people say, oh, I think that's a high crime misdemeanor, where what their, the thought bubble above their head is, I hate the guy. Or you could have people who say, okay, it's, it's a high crime misdemeanor, sure, that would be the thought bubble, but the words out of their head is, it's politically motivated. 
And that would be the opposition, I think, on the part of many Republicans to the legitimate Nixon impeachment. And the first example would be the politically motivated, in my view, and constitutionally illegitimate impeachment of President Clinton. So they didn't quite see that. And also, I'm not sure they got it right in requiring both a majority in the House and then a two-thirds majority in the Senate for removal. But that bar is too high. That bar, I'm not sure it's too high, but there's a good argument that it's too high. Let's go back to the the politically motivated part here, because you mentioned Clinton. That was, of course, the, the fourth in the four instances in which the impeachment process has been at least begun in the U.S. Was that the case with Tyler or Johnson? Yeah, both are politically motivated. Well, let's start with Tyler. With Tyler, there was a thought that he was going in directions, the details are a little obscure, but going in directions that his political opponents didn't like, let's just uh, leave it like that. And then there was a, a speech on the floor, which it had like 13 grounds for impeachment, and basically it was making up stuff about high crimes and misdemeanors, which were basically a mask for thinking the guy's substantively a bum. Uh, the Johnson one's a little easier to, more intuitive and easier to get a handle on, where Johnson was Lincoln's successor, and, and his opponents thought that he wasn't carrying forward Lincoln's legacy in the right way, mm-hmm. that he wasn't sufficiently protective of what the Civil War had been fought for on the North part. And they basically ginned up an impeachment proceeding by saying if he fires members of his cabinet, that's an impeachable offense. It's a high crime and misdemeanor. They actually put that in the law. Hmm. And uh, they wrote to fire one of these people is uh, is a high crime and misdemeanor. And uh, you can't make it so by saying it so, but they tried. And then when they impeached him on the ground that he fired, on the articulated ground that he fired a secretary of defense, they were basically weaponizing, as a matter of politics, the impeachment mechanism. Because if the president, as we now are clear, fires the Secretary of Defense, far from being that an impeachable offense, under ordinary circumstances at least, that's a perfectly legitimate exercise of the authority. The Secretary of Defense works for him. There's no claim that he fired the Secretary of Defense as a way of covering up his own wrongdoing or anything like that. So there, there was a, a, a plain political motivation. And, you know, you can imagine an impeachment proceeding against a Republican or Democrat in any context where the real motivation would be, let's weaken him. So it seems that perhaps Nixon was the only of those four cases that that maybe wasn't politically motivated, or at least not entirely. Yes, you phrase it very well. So the Nixon impeachment, I think it did have a political component to it in the sense that you know, it's been lost in history to, to many, but Nixon, apart from misdeeds, a lot of people just hated the guy, who, who a lot of non-Republicans just hated the guy. Democrats and independents thought this guy is, you know, tricky dick. And they would have welcomed the chance to impeach him on whatever grounds. So in that sense, we can't exclude a political motivation. But if you just look at some of the grounds for impeaching him, you know, misuse of the CIA and the Internal Revenue Service to go after political enemies. That's kind of a core 
impeachable offense. That's what the American Revolution partly stood against. That is the use of government to go after political enemies. And there, the Democrats were right in finding an impeachable offense, and enough of the Republicans were. So that one was a completely legitimate use of the impeachment mechanism. And with respect to our presidents, that's the only one that kind of gets a, 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 a very positive check mark. But I think we should say that there have been a number of failures to use the impeachment mechanism that are worth celebrating and also deserve their own check mark. So President Bush, a lot of people didn't vote for, and they didn't like him so much. This is the second President Bush. Yeah, second. Everyone likes the first President Bush. (laughs) Well, maybe now. (laughs) Maybe now or maybe not likes, but is okay enough with something like that. But yes, absolutely. The second President Bush. And then people were very sharply opposed to him for any number of reasons, including the Iraq War. And there was no serious impeachment effort. Uh, hooray for that. That forbearance is uh, a tribute to the, let's say, law-abiding nature of President Bush's opponents. They didn't use a mechanism that wasn't designed for a political purpose. And President Obama, of course, was despised by many uh, Republicans and a non-trivial number of independents didn't like him so much, but there was no serious impeachment talk. So this, these are kind of dogs that didn't bark in the night, and they do solve a uh, mystery, that is the meaning of the impeachment clause, in, in a nice way. They suggest, no, it's not for this kind of thing. All right. You said earlier that you think that we pretty much got the impeachment process as it as it is uh, stated in the Constitution right, and that it is, in fact, pretty hard to carry out. So for those today who are clamoring for the current president to be impeached, how would you respond to those people when they say, well, he's done X, Y, and Z? How can that possibly not be impeachable? How could it possibly be that the founders got this right? I'll tell you a story. I, I got a call from someone who wants President Trump to be impeached. And as the call emerged, the reason for the desire is President Trump's view on climate change. And it's really hard to turn President Trump's view and actions on climate change into a high crime and misdemeanor. So for people who want President Trump to be impeached, probably the first thing to do is to go behind uh, a veil of ignorance or to take a vow of neutrality. It's not easy for any of us to do, but to say, if, if you thought President Trump was great in policy and you kind of agreed with him on all his policy choices, would you still think he was impeachable? That, that's a way of making sure that you're not politically motivated. Would you willing to say, be willing to say that the ground you are invoking for impeaching him, you would use against someone who was your favorite politician? That's the first thing. The second thing to say is high crimes and misdemeanors really require uh, an egregious abuse of authority. And what have you got? Now, if it's the case that President Trump has, let's say, done something under the Clean Air Act that is objectionable or even unlawful. That's not an impeachable offense. That's a mistake. It might be a terrible mistake, but it's not an abuse of authority. The president did, and so far as I'm aware, there's no evidence right now that he did, but if he did collude with the Russians to get himself elected, 
now we're talking. That's something that was actually called out in the Constitutional Convention, that is, obtaining the office through illicit means, and that now we're talking about an impeachable offense. But we need to identify a particular thing that is either the kind of criminal act that involves an abuse of presidential authority or the kind of abuse of authority that whether or not a criminal act is, say, an invasion of civil liberty or a gross misuse of presidential power. That's the kind of thing, whether the president's a Democrat or Republican, that the document is designed to identify as a basis for impeaching and removing the boss. All right. So much more here to discuss and debate. We only talked about one of your new books. Cass, thank you for being here. Thank you. Great pleasure. Cass Sunstein is a professor at Harvard University, and he is also the author of two new books reviewed on our cover this week, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, and most recently, Can It Happen Here? Authoritarianism in America, which he edited. Catherine Hughes joins us now from London. She is a professor at the University of East Anglia, the author of several books about Victorians, including George Eliot, The Last Victorian, and her latest book is called Victorians Undone, Tales of the Flesh in the Age of Decorum. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So this has what sounds like a very sexy title, Victorians Undone. But this is, and it's not to detract from the interest of the book, but it's not a sexy book. What What is the book about? The book is, is about what it feels like to live in a Victorian body. Because what I realized was I'd researched the lives of well-known Victorians, including George Eliot. And I you know, spent years in the archives looking at, at, at work, at the sort of intellectual development of the people I was writing about. But I'd never really thought about what it felt like to wake up in the morning and inhabit a Victorian body. And I mean, in many ways, it would be very similar to, to our experience. You, know, you, you wake up and you wonder, are you getting a cold or do you need to wash your hair before you go to work? I mean, in many ways, it's the same. But in other ways, it's completely different. And I, I wanted to explore that sense of how are the social codes different? What did it mean to be slightly tall as a woman or as a man to have a missing left forefinger? What, what, what sort of social interactions would follow from the way in which you inhabited the world physically? So that was really the idea, was to try and get right into the skin of Victorians. So it's interesting because I feel like there is and there has been for maybe the last few decades a kind of renewed or new interest in that idea of of daily life. And for some reason, it, it always comes down to where it first goes to the Victorians. So you have museums in England that sort of explore, you know, what were the actual objects in their houses and the TV show about a Victorian farm and what was that like? And we sort of have all of these, you or you have, and you bring them here, these BBC productions about sort of what was it actually like to be Victorian? I don't know. What do you think that's about? Why our cultural interest in in this particular era and, and what it felt like? Well, I think, I mean, my theory is that after the war, you know, that there was a sort of what, what academics call a linguistic turn, meaning that we were so obsessed with the way in which things were described, representations, uh, the way in which a text, you know, a book could have multiple meanings. And, that, and, and you know, this came over from French philosophy, and that was kind of what all the cool kids do. You, you, you looked at text, 
and you looked at the way in which they were slippery and you read between them. And I think this this sort of what you might call them, I mean, academics call it the material turn. In other words, an interest in actual things, you know, things you can touch and feel and are solid. I think it's a reaction to that. It's a, it's a kind of sense of, okay, we've gone as far as we can really with this kind of virtual deconstruction of Victorianism. Now let's, let's get back to basics because the fact is, no matter how sophisticated our readings are of text, the fact is that the Victorians, just like us, had to get up in the morning and deal with the material physical world. And I th- I, so I think it's just a sort of, it's a kind of reconnection. Um, it works very well for the Victorians because um, they are a, a generation that is obsessed with stuff, with material goods, with physical things. And mm-hmm. so it works, you know, because of, uh, you know, new kinds of industrial production, we've got huge numbers of things just being produced at all levels of society and bodies then interact with those things. So, you know, the way in which you pour your tea from a teapot uh, will become, will say something like your social status, for instance. It's not just how fancy is your teapot, it's also do you know how to pour from it in a delicate and elegant way. And so I think, I think it's something to do with looking at those, those very nitty-gritty kind of objects and realising, actually, that can be very sophisticated too. Let's start with a figure who may not be familiar to many of our listeners, Lady Flora Hastings, an unmarried lady-in-waiting at Queen Victoria's court who is ostensibly pregnant. What's the story with her? Queen Victoria took a sort of massive dislike to her because... <laughs> She, because she thought that this unmarried woman was pregnant. So, mm. uh, in a sense, a whole dynastic drama, political drama, unfolds simply because one woman appears to have put on a bit of weight. And that, I was very interested in that, you know, that sense in which we, we all you know, look, look up and down people, our, our friends' figures all the time. And just that, that sense of, yes, but in that case, the whole world became unraveled just because one woman happened to look, look a little bit stouter than usual. The poor woman, Lady Flora Hastings, unmarried, very, very respectable girl of about 32. In fact, she very sadly had some sort of stomach cancer, and that's why her stomach was swelling up. But it made her look pregnant. And to the young Queen Victoria, so this is before she's married Albert, this is just after she's come to the throne, it just seems to her that this woman, who is lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria's mother, whom she dislikes intensely, has actually kind of broken the protocols, broken the codes. And Victoria goes after her with a vengeance. She starts putting around a rumour that Lady Flora has been having an illicit affair with a male courtier. She instructs her own doctors to make a very kind of full gynecological examination, something which would be absolutely monstrous for any unmarried Victorian woman to undergo. And as a result, the country as a whole becomes absolutely inflamed by this because as far as they can see, this new queen, and they're really not sure about the right, the rightness of having a young woman on the throne anyway, this queen has blasted off her reign with the most appalling kind of sexual scandal. And the whole court seems out of control. And the repercussions tip over into the wider world. Political parties take up sides. So Flora Hastings comes from a conservative or Tory family. Victoria is on the side of the Whigs or the Liberals. The whole thing starts to be discussed in Parliament. And I find that absolutely fascinating, that sense of one woman's, you know, gaining 10 pounds can lead to the work cries actually that Victoria should should be made to stand down from the throne. 
And that just seems extraordinary. You know, if, if this crisis had unraveled in a slightly different way, we wouldn't have had a Victorian period. That just seems extraordinary. What happened when they found that it wasn't actually a pregnancy? Well, she sadly died after nine months and um, Victoria insisted on having a post-mortem. And it was at that point that the very sad realisation came about that actually she simply had some, some form of cancer. And Victoria was, Queen Victoria had an amazing ability to sort of ride through it. She had the sort of, the sort of narcissism of a very young queen. She, she maintained that actually she knew all along it was just liver cancer. But as far as the, as the country at large was concerned, this queen had done a monstrous, monstrous thing. So as Flora Hastings' coffin is being taken out of Buckingham Palace, you know, people are hurling stones and shouting and demanding Queen Victoria abdicate. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a very good ending. And very interestingly, a few months after this, Queen Victoria decides that she will accept the proposal of her first cousin, Albert, and she will get married. And that at once puts her into a firm of kind of, she now becomes a married woman. And so these questions of sort of sexual vulnerability are simply not as intense as they are when you're just a, you know, a 19-year-old girl on the throne of England. Let's move to a very different body part, Darwin's beard. Yes. Well, I, you know, we all know Darwin's beard. It's a sort of iconic beard. I mean, we know it in, in Britain because it appears on, on one of our currency notes, on our £10 note. We all know it. It's a, a very famous photograph by Julia Margaret Cameron, very bushy beard. And it seems to sum up both Darwin, but also what we think of as a great Victorian sage. We tend to think of those people like... Tennyson or Browning, those great men of the late 19th century as men with beards that make them look like Old Testament prophets. And I was really interested in, first of all, the moment at which a man decides to grow a beard. I, I, you know, I've never grown a beard myself. And I was always interested in how does that, how does that decision come about? In the case of Darwin, it's a very homely, simple reason. He has a very bad attack of eczema and his wife, Emma, suggests that by not shaving, he will you know, stop irritating his skin and he'll also cover up the redness that makes him feel so, so, so self-conscious when he goes out to scientific meetings. But what I was really interested in was that when he proceeds to go back into social circulation after having grown his beard, nobody knows who he is. It's really awful. He goes to a great sort of party at the Royal Society and is in that embarrassing situation of his, his great friends not recognizing him. It's a sort of mortification. So I was very interested in that whole cycle of it's not just growing the beard and why you decide to grow it, but also what happens afterwards when you, as it were, debut your beard in society. And I, I really wanted to know about that. So when you brought up embarrassment, so there's also discomfort and feeling self-conscious and, and repression. And these are all things that I think we associate with the Victorians. And I'm curious if, if we do that, if, if, if those stereotypes hold when you looked deeper into these stories or if those are, in fact, just stereotypes with little founding. Well, I think what I found is both true and not true. So there is a huge bodily embarrassment. That, that is absolutely true. But that embarrassment, I think, and silence in some cases, arises not because Victorians didn't acknowledge their bodies, but because they were obliged to live with them so, so closely in ways that are just unimaginable to us. So, um, you know, if, if you think of 
the new conditions of urban living in the mid-19th century. People are pouring into the cities from the countryside. They're finding themselves knocking up against other bodies in the street, in the omnibus, the railroad, at the theatre, in lodging houses. So suddenly other people's bodies are very, very present. It's like living in a culture where somebody's permanently got their elbows stuck in your face. And I was I think that that is the point that the the embarrassment and the huge, huge anxiety about how to manage those physical relationships comes out of a new sense of living not just in your body but alongside other bodies. So I think it's very, very specific. It's not we have this slightly old fashioned idea that it's something to do with um, um you know anxiety about um sexual repression or, or religious worries. I think it's a lot more practical. It's a, mo- it's a lot more about you find yourself riding in a bus, sitting next to somebody whose thigh is squashed up against yours, and you, you've never had this situation before, and you're thinking, you know, how do I deal with that? So that is my hunch, that yes, there's a lot of anxiety, but it's, it's a kind of more nuanced than we thought. I'm glad we can bring in George Eliot here. you obviously written an entire biography about her, but this is... It interestingly focused on her right hand. What what's the story there? Well, what, what it was was that I, in, if you read all the biographies that have ever been written about her, starting shortly after her death in the eighteen eighties, all the biographers right from the start mention that her right hand was slightly bigger than her left in adult life, and she always put that down to the fact that as a young woman on her father's farm. She had made so much butter and cheese that that right hand had permanently swollen. So that even when she's the most famous novelist in the world, all she has to do is look at her hands and be reminded of her physical past. I thought that was so interesting. Once I dove into all the sources in the archives, a lot of them actually held it at, at, at Yale, um, I found that her descendants, um, her nephews and great-nephews, were appalled at this news about the right hand being bigger than the left. And they would they would insist on biographers trying to leave it out. They would put pressure on them. They would say, we won't cooperate with you on your biography if you insist on putting this silly story around that her right hand was bigger than her left. And I thought that was so intriguing. I mean, what's so awful about it? You know, George had a lot of physical kind of challenges. You know, she had very poor teeth, for instance. You know, you might, you might, be a bit upset about that. But no, what the family was interested in was this large right hand. And of course, I, I realized once I looked at the letters that it's, it's really about class. It's about the fact that the next generation down who were all becoming gentry, they were going into the church, they were becoming gentlefolk, really couldn't bear the idea that their illustrious aunt this very, very famous woman, had once, in effect, been a farm girl making butter and cheese on her on her dad's farm. And they wanted that written out of the story. And I just found that so fascinating, that sense of what descendants get anxious and nervy about, which it's never the thing you think. You know, there are many things that they could have got upset about, thinking about George Eliot and the way in which she was often physically described, but you would never have picked that right hand. And so I, I just found that by following that hand, it just took me deep into Eliot's past. It allowed me to think about what her life would have been like. And just about the fact that, you know, the hand that wrote Middlemarch was also a hand that knew how to make butter. Um, and that's not something we have now. So just that sense in which bodies change 
change their, their reality and the things that they become habituated to. Let's go to one of the, the hum, very humble stories that you tell of, of a girl named Fanny Adams, an eight-year-old working-class girl. Why focus on her? Why write about her? That was, uh, I, I, in, in Britain, we have this expression, sweet Fanny Adams. I'm not sure if you have it in the States, but it's used to mean nothing at all. It's an old-fashioned expression. It just means, oh, I got there and it was sweet Fanny Adams. There was nothing there at all when I got there. And I was always interested in the origin of that word. And I found out that it was because, and it's rather gruesome, an eight-year-old girl in 1867 was out playing on a Saturday afternoon, that classic kind of scenario. She was waylaid by a young man, a solicitor's clerk, who killed her, I imagine also raped her, and then to get rid of the evidence, chopped her up into many, many pieces, which were then scattered over the uh, the territory, uh, the, the field in which he'd encountered her. And I was just very interested in how such a gruesome and horrible thing could end up as this rather jolly expression we have, sweet Fanny Adams or sweet F.A., we sometimes say. And it turned out it was because it was a sailor's joke about the fact that they often felt that their rations weren't up to scratch. The food they were being served wasn't really very nice. And in the way of sailors, they would joke to each other, you know what you, ha- what, you know that what that rotten meat is on your plate, don't you? It's a bit of Fanny Adams, it's sweet F.A., it's nothing at all. And I was just very interested both in how um, a saying, you know, becomes so detached from its material origins, but I was also very interested in the way that the case was reported because it's it's clear to us, I think, uh, in the 21st century that obviously this is a, an act of, a, this, this is paedophilia, this is a, somebody who goes out looking for children, uh, finds one, rapes one, and then murders one. It seems so obvious to us, but I was very, very interested in the way that the case was reported, both in the press and also actually in the court report, where there's no word for paedophilia, because there's no concept of it. The only thing that the lawyers can think about is the fact that here is a young man who has let his lust get out of control, and that's probably because he's been drinking. And I found that so interesting. It's only 100 and whatever years, you know, 150 years. But in that time, we have developed a whole sense and understanding and a pathology around the sexualization of children that simply wasn't available to the Victorians. And yet, and yet, Fanny's working class family knew that there was a sort of man that hung around fields looking for little girls. So there's a sort of instinctive folk knowledge about, you know, being careful about strange men. But why, by the time the story comes to court, it's simply about a young man who's had too much to drink and has left his, allowed his lust to get out of control. I'm going to leave out the story of the other Fanny in your book. Yeah. Uh, but just to end on a kind of general question, what did you find was the most sort of the greatest distinction in terms of how the Victorians thought about the human body and how we do today? As always with the Victorians, I think this is why they're so fascinating. They are both like us and not like us, which is what makes them so incredibly interesting. So in many ways, you can read a letter about somebody describing their cold or their stubbed toe or their rheumatism, and it it would be the sort of letter that we would write now. And yet, at the same time, there's a complete lack of understanding, as as we would see it, of, of how things should be should be looked after, what what certain symptoms mean. So, for instance, I've got letters where aunts 
happily say to their nieces, I was so glad to see you looking so fat the last time I saw you. Mm-hmm. And at first you think, my goodness, that what an awful auntie, what a terrible thing to say to your niece. But then you realize, of course, in a world where slenderness and thinness means illness and possible death and tuberculosis, to compliment somebody on looking fat is actually to compliment them on how very, very good they're looking. And I found that very interesting, that sense in which things symptoms mean different things. So that, you know, we think the pallor, for instance, might mean that somebody was anemic. But actually to the Victorians, it means that you've been out of the sun, that you've been leading a very genteel sort of life, that you are a lady, that you have, uh, you know, that you are, you are leading a kind of smart kind of existence. So again, it's, it's as if the body is the same, by and large. We haven't changed that much. We've got a little bit bigger since then. But what we think it means has changed so much. Each symptom seems to have a different meaning from how it did 150 years ago. And and that, I think, means that the experience of living in that body must have been so different. I think possibly the thing I would take away is that if we look at people now, we can't really tell much about them. We can't tell what job they do from looking at their bodies. If we could now go back to 1860... We look around. We would look around. We would know. We would know exactly what work people did. People who were journalists would be very, very hunched. Every woman over 45 would have a sort of dowager's hump because there would be a lot of bone loss. Children would be missing fingers. I mean, nobody would be perfect, uh, and everybody would tell a story of class and also of accident and luck. So the body was just very, very kind of vocal in what it could tell you in a way that I think is very muffled now. We live in a much, much more kind of muffled world. Yes, but will they all discover that everyone has bent necks from staring at their phones, bending over? (laughs) And big thumbs from texting. That's right. All right, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. Catherine Hughes is the author most recently of Victorians Undone, Tales of the Flesh in the Age of Decorum. Alexander Alter joins us now to talk about what's new in the literary world. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Pamela. So we have a scandal. Another scandal. Every week I bring you a new scandal. This time it's a lawsuit that was filed in uh, Alabama federal court by the estate of Harper Lee. And they are bringing a suit against Scott Rudin and the producers of a forthcoming Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. This is a highly anticipated play. It's the first Broadway adaptation of the novel And it was adapted by the screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, and Jeff Daniels is playing Atticus Finch. This is something that a lot of people are eager to see. And it was sort of surprising that it came about in the first place because Harper Lee herself had often said she was opposed to a Broadway production of the play. Now, why opposed to a Broadway production when it was so famously turned into a movie. So famously, and she loved the movie. And there was a play that was put on in her hometown every year for many years that I think she wasn't particularly fond of. So that's a, you know, that's a good question. That's one of those mysteries of Harper Lee that we'll never solve. She, I think, was protective of the characters. However, I think about eight months before she died, she did sign this contract and, you know, through her literary agent suggested that she thought 
the play would be in the right hands with Aaron Sorkin and Scott Rudin. Now the executive of her state, Tanya Carter, who we've written about quite a bit, Mm -hmm. has brought a lawsuit against the production company saying that the script diverges too far from the original and that the contract had protected the characters and and it was stipulated in the contract that it couldn't deviate too much from the original. And it was interesting because... In the court case, the documents included something that was under seal. Of course, that caught our interest. And that was where she outlined some of her problems with the play and cited specific language. But in the complaint itself, she does talk about the ways in which it departs from the original. Her main critique was of the character of Atticus, who, of course, in the original is this crusading, sort of morally upright lawyer who defends an African-American man accused unjustly of rape. And he's sort of, you know, the symbol, really, for civil rights and equality in this in the divided South. And in the play, according to the complaint, Atticus has more of a moral evolution. He's somewhat of a naive apologist for the status quo in the beginning and through repeated interactions with the housekeeper, Calpurnia, he comes to see sort of the importance of, of racial equality. And, of course, there's often been disputes between novelists or their estates and adaptations. But I think for the most part, these contracts recognize that when something gets adapted, for be it for television, film, or for the stage, there's a lot of room that the adapters have to, you know, create something new that stands on its own. Intellectual property experts that have looked at the contract say, well, this does say that, you know, it can't derogate the characters, but it's up to the playwrights and it's up to the producers ultimately to decide whether this is true to the spirit of the book. It does not grant that ability to the estate or the author. So it seems like they're well within their rights to make some changes. I spoke to Scott Rudin for the story. He said this is absolutely true to the spirit of the book, and he thinks that this is still an evolving work. It's set to open later this year. He thinks that it will ultimately please fans of To Kill a Mockingbird. And he also said, you know, he didn't feel like he could present a play that appeared as if it was created in the year that the novel was written. The novel was published in 1960. It was a very different time. And the play gives larger a larger role to Calpurnia, the African-American maid of the Finch family, and to Tom Robinson, the accused man. And he said that was very important to him to sort of give those characters more of a voice, which they don't have in the original. And he noted that that's one of the reasons that the book has been pulled from some schools who think it has kind of outdated racial models. So it'll be very interesting to see how this case progresses. It's, a, it's quite an unusual one. And whether, you know, the parties might simply come to an agreement with some tweaks to the script, we're not sure yet what will happen. But I'll be eager to follow it and certainly to to see the play. We're going to make you write about Harper Lee <laughs> all year and all next year. Her, no matter what. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey. All right, let's start with you, Greg, once again, since you, well, I am you're still, here and you're back with Ulysses. I, I am still <laughs> and always. You're going to be here with Ulysses for the next year, I feel. <laughs> that, that, that is exactly what I did with Power Broker. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's about 50-page chunks at a time there. Here I've got a, about a 20-page chunk since the last time that, that I checked in with you on Ulysses. <laughs> and I count that as a triumph <laughs> because I've been reading it, um, you know, on the train and before bed. Um, I, I've made it through now the the conclusion of Leopold Bloom's first section. I didn't say last week, but I said to John as we were walking away from the podcast, one of the great things about reading a classic like this is all the stuff that you 
haven't heard that hasn't sifted down to you through the culture at large. And Leopold Bloom, I had no idea, is this kind of bundle of neuroses. He is sex obsessed. This book was published just about 100 years ago. I I think it started um, being published serially in March of 1918. And uh, here we are in March of 2018. And so Leopold Bloom is doing kind of that era's equivalent of sexting with somebody. He has opened up a mailbox under a fake name. He's taken out a a newspaper ad and he's exchanging these kind of racy letters with a woman. His fake name, instead of Bloom, he is Flower. So again, Joyce with all all the wordplay going on. Every woman that he passes, he is kind of evaluating her, thinking what her erotic life must be like, how she is in bed. You know, he's he's just this kind of uh, very sexually tuned creature. But then it ends, of course, he's at this funeral. And so it it moves from sex to death in, in that section in a way that is very nimble and very stream of consciousness, but kind of takes in this, this whole range of life and death. And then the section that I'm reading now continues with Bloom, but it, it moves in and out of other characters in these very short, almost microfiction passages, each of which gets a little headline or, or kind of um, subheading situating you where you are. It gets into the media environment of the time, kind of the classified ads and things like that. And um, I'm just making my way through that. So I, that's that's the section that I'm in now. You know, I like to nose around in the Times archives. And one of the things I found yesterday was the first Times review of the complete Ulysses yeah. that came out. And I think you'd love it. I'm going to find it and send it to you because it says something like, this is undoubtedly great work, but if only there were a primer <laughs> to go with it that would explain everything. Yeah, I think that'd be helpful. I'm yeah. sure there are primers now. And in, in fact, um, somebody listening to the podcast suggested that I, um, while I read the book, I also listen to an audio version of it um, because the, the language, the, the music of the language, um, you see it on the page. And I, I um, gave a couple of examples on the podcast last week of, of all the stuff going on. But it's true. I, I think that hearing it read aloud um, would probably bring a lot to to the experience as well. How does it work as train reading? It's fine on, you know, it, it, reading, especially this section that I'm in right now, where it's these very short segments, it, it lends itself to train reading. Um, it is not hard. Um, it's very slice of life, just kind of, you know, again, going through this one day in June. Um, and you know, you're getting a picture of the city and a, a picture of the characters in the city and, and kind of the industry, the trades um, going on. It's it's fine for train reading. I'll yeah. check back with you in 400 pages <laughs> on that question. I want to ask a quick question. How many people upon hearing that you're reading it say that they've once started it but never finished? Uh, four different people have said to me when, when they heard that I'm reading this now, um, they've said, I'll be curious to see if you finish. They haven't let on whether they finished or not. Right. <laughs> but, I, I but, think they are letting on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a hint. What about you, Tina? So I just read The House of Broken Angels by Luis Alberto Urea. And I came a little late to it. It came out, I guess, 10 days ago. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to tell you. Tina, <laughs> seriously, get on top of it. It's only taken Greg 100 years. <laughs> I am embarrassed to tell you that I had not read him before. I know he's published fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and much of it deals with border politics. Um, in fact, he had a recent great op-ed in the paper. But this is this beautiful, sprawling, warm messy, big-hearted novel about a Mexican-American clan in San Diego. And 
It takes place in the space of a week. The family's patriarch, who's just buried his mother, has invited the whole clan to come and celebrate his 70th birthday. And it's going to be his last birthday. He's dying of cancer. But this is so not a sad book. This is a book about family and all its tiny, you know, little quarrels and, you know, ties. It's just, it's funny. You read it, right, Greg? I did. It's it's actually, I mean, it, it's very funny. Very it's, it's, funny. It's often laugh out loud funny. It is. Yeah. And in the tiny little descriptions of things, you know. Um, but I, it's a family epic. And I know some people are calling it like a great Mexican-American novel. I just feel like it's a great American novel. Yeah, and um, it it does get at border politics, it and does. there's uh, and and at questions of assimilation. I mean, it's, yes. it's kind of an immigration novel. It's an immigration novel because the family is not entirely here legally, and there's that issue. And one of the kids in the family is actually served in the military, and he's still deported. Like he's done a tour in Iraq. I don't want, even though two deaths are really basically at the center of it. It's really not a sad novel, and I would say that anybody who just loves reading about the messy intricacies of family will love it. And because um, Big Angel's mother, the the, right. the main character's the, mother, the who, who has just died, um, she she was basically 100 or, right. or was 100 when she died. And so it gives Araya a chance to go back and look at like 100 years, 100 years of, ago. of interactions between Americans and Mexicans and how the, how the right. politics have changed in that time. Right. And to be very clear, like it's also about blowing up, you know, American stereotypes of Mexican-Americans. I mean, Big Angel holds a lot of jobs like he's, you know, he hates the idea that people think of. Mexicans is lazy, for example. Right. Like he's industrious. He's everywhere. He's, he gets everywhere early. I mean. For so many sprawling themes, it's not a giant thing. It's it not a like giant a... thing. I read it, you know, in a weekend and I just, I just can't get it out of my head. Have you read other books by him, Greg? I have. And I, I've, um, I like this one better than some of what I've read in the past. Um it, <laughs> maybe that maybe, he says so, generously. Maybe, well, no, maybe I think best. I might like it more than you, but I just, I just, you know, it's going to be the book I'm telling people to read. You know, we're all asked every day, what should I read next? <laughs> like, this is the one I'll be recommending. Well, now you've just told all our podcast listeners, <laughs> and they shall obey. I'm reading a book that you could kind of slip inside the introduction to Ulysses. It's uh, it's less than a hundred pages, I think. Um, it's something that I've been meaning to read for a long time, and a colleague kind of mentioned it in passing last week, which made me pull it off the shelf. It's a book called Too Loud a Solitude by a Czechoslovakian writer named Bohumil Hrabal. His last name is spelled H-R-A-B-A-L. Say that five times fast. <laughs> no, I, I practiced. And um, so the one time is over. <laughs> uh, and actually, my colleague, uh, one of our staff critics here, Parl Sagel, wrote about him in 2016 in January in the book review. She wrote an essay on the occasion of a translation of another collection of his. This short book is kind of almost a fable. It's about a man who works in his basement compacting waste paper. And so there are just the sometime, you know, post-war and people come and just dump these tons and tons of waste paper in this courtyard and then it funnels down into his basement and he compacts it into these bales. <laughs> and he does two things. He saves books from all the waste paper. He finds rare books in them and he takes them out and he takes them home. And his home is this sort of completely physically impossible, you know, like these Rube Goldberg contraptions holding books over his bed and he's just crushed by books. <laughs> and then in the bales, he sort of makes 
he makes things outward facing on them so that people will see them in the trash yards. And he, he considers himself almost an artist. But obviously there's also, as Parle said in his work, beauty, pity, sorrow, and high silliness come tightly braided. Um, there's a lot of sort of dark stuff here about censorship and about the post-war world. Um, and But in reading all these books and living alone, he has all these sorts of flights of fancy in his head. And so even though it's a thin book, it feels very capacious and it kind of opens out into this fairy tale-like quality. And um, I'm really loving it. I only have about six pages left. I tried to finish on the subway this morning. I didn't quite get there. I feel like it's a slim book, not a thin book. It is. It is a slim book, not a thin book. Okay. Um, it's a it's a very worthwhile book, and it's the first of his that I've read. So maybe do, do I remember right from Parle's essay? Um, this is the author who died falling out of a hotel room window, and there was some question whether he was pushed or threw himself. Yeah, she, for... she said her lead was that um, that he died only once in Prague in 1997, but there are at least two versions of the story. In the first, he slipped from a window while feeding birds at the hospital where he was being treated for arthritis, um, and in the second. Uh, he had been, because he had been banned by the government and his books had been burned by by people, he became consumed with jumping from his window. And so there, there's some, you know, and that a couple of months shy of his 83rd birthday, he threw himself so, out of his hospital window. It's a little bit of a Primo Levi question yeah. of whether it was suicide or, mm-hmm. or an accident. Exactly. <laughs> Pamela, what are you reading this week? Well, I started talking a little bit about it last week. I'm reading um, Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, which I guess for some people is maybe the favorite Wilkie Collins, although I think most people would choose The Woman in White. But it's... it's... Most people are just you. <laughs> <laughs> well... You were very into that book when we were discussing it on the I loved yeah. that book. Um, but I'm loving this so far. I'm not that far into it. This is considered um, by many, at least according to the back of the paperback copy I have, to be the first modern detective novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you read it, Tina? I have. I love it. Okay. All right. Well, then you may not reveal anything because what I'll say a couple things about the the first part of it. One is that there is a good period in which you're like, how is this going to be a detective story? I don't see how this is going to be a detective story. And then, of course, it very quickly becomes a detective story. <laughs> but the other thing I was thinking about while you were talking, Greg, about this book and and kind of like what what a touchstone it is for people, the narrator of this first part is a kind of butler um, or sort of, I, I don't know exactly what to term him in the hierarchy of, of in the hierarchy of family servants, he is at the top. Um, He's and the man. Yes. And he, um, for him, the book Robinson Crusoe is this sort of constant companion. And at the end of every day, or at least when he's feeling upset or needing something, he will just reread that one book. Mm. And so, um, and he quotes from it uh, throughout the it's this part of the book and maybe throughout the entire thing. I don't know. Um, and every quote that you read, you think, well, wow, yeah. Um, I don't recall reading that in Robinson Crusoe, but <laughs> I found myself thinking, like, maybe I need to read Robinson Crusoe <laughs> at the end of every day because there's a lot in there. So that's all I'll say about the Moonstone for this well, week. I will say that when I was a child, it's the book that first, like, interested me in detective fiction because there was a Masterpiece Theater production of it. And on Sunday nights, my parents watched Masterpiece Theater. And I was just, I don't know, I must have been eight or nine. I was riveted. Oh, so you watched the TV show first? I watched the Masterpiece Theater production. Very unorthodox, Very unorthodox. (laughs) And from there, because I was in grade school, I went straight to Agatha Christie first. (laughs) And then when did you finally read The Moonstone? I must have been in middle school. I I became obsessed with British detective fiction at that point. The very first thing I read was Agatha Christie's Cat Among the Pigeons. Because it took place at a school with where the kids were my age. That's a great time. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. 
Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 